dear fellow redeemed in Christ Jesus. As I uh, look over uh, the congregation here, I'm guessing that many of you can recall the song, We Didn't Start the Fire. It was released by Billy Joel back in 1989. And it's sort of a kaleidoscope of images that he throws out one after the other. It's a, it's a steady stream of dozens of cultural references from things that happened post-World War II up until 40 years later, which happened to be Billy Joel's 40th birthday. It gives the names of people like Joseph Stalin and Chow and Lai, Marilyn Monroe, and JFK. It lists movie titles like Bridge on the River Kwai. It throws out news stories that were, ha were splashed on the headlines like Children of Thalidomide from the 1950s or Trouble in the Suez. All these events marking 40 years of massive cultural changes and ferment blend into the refrain, we didn't start the fire, it's been always burning since the world is turning, we didn't start the fire. For those of you who feel that that song's just a little too far back into the dark ages, it might interest you to know that about a week ago, the punk group Fallout Boy released a, an updated version of the song. This one features topics like MySpace, the Boston Marathon bombing, and Brexit. But in either version of the song, a clear interpretation, what the author is really after, it's a little hard to pin down. But the basic idea is clear. It's social change. It's different forces pushing up against one another and creating all kinds of waves and disturbances in society. Like the song itself, which just moves rapidly and ever more rapidly, so society's ferment just seems to drive on towards, for the world, some unknown destination with history. Or destination with destiny, I guess. It's kind of like a brush fire taking off. Well, today I'm here to talk about another sort of movement. A different brush fire that Billy Joel and Fallout Boy seem to overlook. This fire also, we did not start, and it has been burning from even before the world was turning, burning in the heart of God. And this is a movement that could not have survived if it had not been begun with God. In a moment, I'm going to read your text for today from Acts, but I'd like to give you a little bit of background first. You're probably aware that the book of the Acts of the Apostles begins with Jesus' ascension into heaven. And then 10 days later, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. 
The Christian church, in a sense, was born right there. And it began to, to grow and, and spread in Jerusalem. Over the next few chapters, or the next few chapters describe the growth and the activity of believers under the leadership of the apostles. Of course, there is opposition from the Jewish establishment, from the leaders of the people. One incident in particular is described, I think it's chapter 3, where we hear of Peter and John walking into the temple one day and they encounter a blind beggar by the side of the way and they heal his disability in the name of Jesus Christ. Now that caused quite a stir. People knew this man. He'd been there daily and regularly and they were astonished to see what Peter and John did but it caused an even more strong response from the Jewish leaders who arrested Peter and John and put them in prison. They brought them out and they interviewed them after a while and they ordered them to stop talking about Jesus, stop speaking in Jesus' name specifically. And then they let them go. That didn't stop them. And then we come to chapter 5. It's still in the early days of the church there in Jerusalem. And all the apostles are in the temple preaching and telling people about Jesus, the risen one. And so the Jewish leaders, particularly the, the priests and the leaders in the temple, arrest all the whole lot of them, put them in prison. And that night... An angel releases them from prison, leads them out, and tells them, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. So the apostles marched right back where they'd been ordered to leave and started back right at what they'd been doing before. Word of this was brought back to those leaders the high priest and the temple officers, and they dragged the apostles back in, into their interview. And this time, actually, they took them before the whole Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council of 70 members that governed Jewish civil and religious life. Confronting the apostles, they reminded them that they had been told not to preach about Jesus. and made it clear that they were in big trouble. To this, Peter and the others famously answered, we ought to obey God rather than men, adding, the God of our fathers raised up this Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Well, by now, those leaders were apoplectic, they were, they were furious, and they were just discussing ways that they could get rid of, they could destroy the whole lot of the apostles. But that is when a voice of reason, a thoughtful and respected leader, spoke up 
And we come to our text from the book of Acts, chapter 5, beginning at verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was highly respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be put outside a little while. Then he said to them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you are about to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, all his followers were scattered, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and led many people in a revolt. He also was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. Perhaps you might even be found to be fighting against God. They were convinced by him. They summoned the apostles, beat them, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. Every day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Thus far the word. So there you have it. <clears throat> Today I would like you to think about Gamaliel's advice and what it means. If this thing that we embrace, this Christianity, this age-old message of the risen Christ and the salvation he provides is really true. And, well, more than true. Is it God's doing or not? The first thing to realize about the gospel proclamation is if this thing is from God, resistance is futile. The history of the Jews in the couple of hundred years before Christ's time saw a lot of resistance, a lot of revolutionary uprisings, because they, they were oppressed, as always, but they were oppressed first under Alexander the Great's big invasion, and they were put under one of Alexander's generals for a while after Alexander died. And then there was infighting, and then they were put under another one of his generals. And then finally they came under the power of the Romans. So they're always kind of trying to shrug off outside uh, oppression. Gamaliel pointed out that these revolutionary movements during that time, especially ones that are based on a single charismatic leader, tend to come and go. And they go away a lot faster if the leader turns up dead. That was the case, Gamaliel said, with Theodos, 
um, and his 400, about whom we don't really know anything else historically, except that he must have lived before Jesus, because then Gamaliel said, then came along Judas of Galilee, and he, he anchors him right in the time of the census, right when Jesus was born. But these leaders, despite their popularity, despite their energy and their, their, their wits, they couldn't survive dying. That was the end, and it was the end of their ambitions. If you can kill a leader, you can nip that revolution in, a bu in the bud. And that's what this exact body, the Sanhedrin, had tried to do with Jesus of Nazareth. They found a traitor among Jewish, Jesus' followers. They seized the opportunity to arrest Jesus. They handed him over to the Romans on trumped-up charges. And the Romans, we all know, were ruthlessly efficient at getting rid of people they didn't want around. So at first, things to be going the way that the leaders of the Jews wanted. As C.F.W. Walther's hymn put it, the foe was a triumphant when on Calvary the Lord of creation was nailed to the tree. In Satan's domain did the hosts shout and jeer, for Jesus was slain, whom the evil ones fear. But as that hymn continues, short was their triumph. Subsequent reports after that Passover, after Good Friday when Jesus was crucified, subsequent reports called the success of the Jewish leaders' actions into question. Gamaliel, no doubt, was familiar with the rumors. An empty tomb. That guard that had been placed there suddenly struck terrified and falling down as if they were dead. Messenger, um, reports of angels appearing to people, reports of Jesus appearing to his followers time and again. Maybe these apostle guys, maybe they were fabricating it all. Or maybe they were deluded, they were nuts. But Gamaliel under, understood if they were right, this had to be God's work. And resistance against God's work is futile. The Church of Jesus Christ is based on the faith and the evidence and the first-hand testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead. And no other religious or secular power can say that about its leader, nor does it have the divine authority that it, that implies. If God raised somebody from the dead, you better be ready to listen to that somebody. It's that authority that keeps the church bold and vibrant and alive to this very day. Another point Gamaliel's argument implies is that if this thing is from God, Jesus' witnesses are not going to go away. Almost as important as the fact 
of Theodos or Judas's death is the effect it had on their revolutions. They failed. The followers suddenly had no one to follow, nothing to follow. Gamaliel says they were just scattered. Without a unifying and organizing leader, their movement lost momentum. They lost a clear purpose, and perhaps their they were impeded by jealousy and infighting. We know that that's what happened after um, Alexander the Great's death. He had four generals, and they didn't get along, and the empire was carved up. But not so with Jesus' followers. They were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, eyewitnesses of his resurrection and also eyewitnesses that what God had sent Jesus to do was complete. He had accomplished what he was sent to do. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He provided redemption for the lost human race. Jesus' followers just became more confident, more purposeful. They didn't just still have a leader that they honored and loved. They had a message for all mankind that they needed to continue to share. The minute that these apostles were freed, despite the leader's commands, threats, and abuse, they went right back to their preaching and teaching. And it wasn't just the apostles and other first-hand witnesses of the church that were vibrant about Jesus and the gospel. With Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had endowed their message with power. It turned the hearts of believers, many times hardened believers like, the, like Saul. These people came to know Jesus not just as a historical figure, but as their personal savior, someone they couldn't live without because he brought them the treasure of their life. Sinners all, guilty before a holy God, in Jesus, these followers found, um, they found themselves justified, found themselves counted righteous before a holy God, which is where we all need to be. They were redeemed to be children of God in this world, not wanderers and rebels against him. And that is why Christianity survives every attempt by mighty rulers, by masses of people, and by Satan's own armies. It survives every attempt to silence its message. Our, our foes might push the church around squeeze it like, like a balloon. You squeeze it in one area, it expands in another. But the church will always survive because it's the body of Christ. And nothing can dismember the body of Christ, let alone scatter it into nothingness. Finally, and this is something Gamaliel even seemed to get wrong, if this thing is from God, 
Making his followers suffer will only confirm their faith and strengthen their conviction. Gamaliel said, leave them alone. So they let the apostles go, but they couldn't just let them go. This time, they beat them. They inflicted physical punishment upon them. You, and one would think that if you made it painful enough for somebody to keep saying something, they would eventually quit saying it. But that wasn't the case. They had tried earlier with Peter and John to silence them. They had tried with all the apostles to silence them. but the apostles literally went right back to what they were doing. Now the leaders beat them and let them go. And, you guessed it, they went right back to what they were doing. They went back to the temple, not just once, but day after day they were in those open temple courts, Solomon's porch, preaching and sharing with one another the gospel. And they went from house to house, continuing to instruct, to build up, to encourage, to strengthen through the word of God. And they did this, get this, they did all this rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. If you read through the letters in the New Testament, the assumption of, of the the divine authors is clear that we who confess and live our faith in Christ will suffer somehow. It's just organic. It's part of our relationship with Jesus. He told his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. And the apostle Paul understood this when he spoke to the Philippians about the the suffering, I'm sorry, the fellowship of his sufferings. But what does seem a little strange is not only can we count on having to endure some kind of affliction, some kind of cross to bear as Christians, but that we take joy in it. That we find that's meaningful to us. And how is that? the mocking that Christians endure from non-believers, the disemployment and displacement that often happens to people because of their faith, the, the social exclusion, the unofficial harassment by the population, or the sanctioned persecutions that Christians encounter all over the world, that these are something that somehow means something to us good. We take a joy in it. And the reason for that is because they tie us materially to what we know Jesus endured for our sake, for us. The Christian church, with its message of redemption and hope, is a fire. It is spreading. It's growing. Like many brush fires or house fires, sometimes it's not all that visible. It's kind of under the surface. It's just smoldering away, but it's ready at any time to flare up and grow bright. We didn't start this fire, but we know who did. 
So what now? When we encounter resistance in living out our faith, should we give up? Should we dive for cover? Well, of course not, because we know it started with God. Resistance is futile, remember? Jesus lives, so what do we have to be afraid of? What if we don't see blazing results? What if what we look around and see is that Christianity is really being stamped out? That especially what is true and faithful Christianity? Conservative Lutheranism, the CLC, seems on its way out. You know that Messiah congregation here, we've been blessed with extraordinary growth for a lot of reasons, and that's a joyful thing to see. But you also know that our brothers and sisters in other CLC congregations are often struggling along, not growing, not seeing a lot of outward growth. And the question might come, will the CLC survive? Will conservative Lutheranism survive? And the answer to that is, I can't really tell you. But I can tell you that in some way, shape, or form, there will be faithful Christians on this planet until the Lord comes. We may end up looking a little different in 50 years than we do now, but we will not be. The church will not be scattered into nothingness. It will not disappear into the wind because we have God's word if we only hold to it. And the Spirit guides his believers into one faith, one, tr- one truth, one faith, one baptism. What if we are called on to suffer, to sacrifice job or land or social standing? What if the looming clouds of our post-Christian society grow even stormier? Well, that will only happen, my friends, if the Lord permits it to be so, and he will only allow it to happen if he's, because he sees fit to show us, to sort out for us what is true and what is false. What will evaporate if we grasp after it, and what will endure if we hold on to it? If we continue in faith, we will succeed. May Christ, the risen one, create a fire that endures until this fallen world does stop turning, and we enter the light of an everlasting day in the presence of our God. Amen.